You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates and campus news, and I discuss how Colorado is moving to offer at-home COVID-19 rapid tests. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU Athletics, and then you'll be hearing a conversation between Ivy and Dr. Doreen Martinez about the historical and cultural context behind the Hughes Landback Initiative in part one of a two-piece story. Then, Coda tells us about how methamphetamine is impacting communities of color, and we hear from Anton Schindler with a feature of his podcast, Painting in the Corners. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19, and Kenneth Frederick from CTV will give us a sneak peek into Thursday's episode. To conclude the show, Coda explains some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Ellie Shannon for KCSU Campus News, and we're nearing the end of our fifth week of our fall semester. This week, the World Health Organization updated its updated its air quality guidelines for the first time in 16 years. Part of the help with updating these guidelines was due to CSU's Assistant Professor of Epidemiology, Dr. David Rojas. Rojas is an advisor to WHO, and according to CSU News' Mary Gooden, Rojas stated, since the WHO's last global update in 2005, there has been a marked increase evidence that shows how air pollution affects different aspects of health. Outdoor and household pollution accounted for approximately 12% of deaths in 2019, so this update was much needed. A sweat lodge is a native place for Native Americans to practice their spiritual beliefs, but according to Austria Khan of the Collegian, the sweat lodge that was built on July 24th on Hughes Land was deconstructed. On September 18th, a press conference was held in response to the destruction. This land is part of the land back movement so that native peoples can freely worship. David Young of the Apache tribe of Colorado stated that this was an insult and that whoever was responsible needs to take accountability. Sidewalks and bike paths on the south side of Lori Student Center and to the west of Morgan Library will be closed on Thursday, September 25th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. This closure is due to fencing that will be installed. For more information, contact Facilities Project Manager Jen Marley at 970-568-6327. Make sure to listen to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with Coda and Ivy. Thanks for listening to my campus news announcements. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. The Stag Hollow fire reached 100% containment, prompting Pooter Fire Authority to drop voluntary evacuation orders in the affected areas. Pooter Fire Authority tweeted Tuesday evening the voluntary evacuations were lifted following containment of the fire, and that the fire would be patrolled Wednesday before reducing the need for crews. The Stag Hollow Fire, which was located in the Stag Hollow Road area off Glade Road, southwest of Fort Collins, first was identified on Monday in burned roughly 17 and a half acres. Loveland Fire Rescue initially responded to the fire before Poudre Fire Authority stepped in to take over. The state of Colorado is now giving away rapid at-home COVID-19 tests via delivery. According to Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, Governor Jared Polis announced the program's return at a press conference Tuesday, emphasizing that testing is a proven way to stop the spread of COVID-19 and keep the state's numbers trending down. Polis says, quote, This is when we need the health benefit of those tests, when we have COVID-19 high COVID rates in our state. This is the time we need intervention. That's why we're making it available now. End quote. Polis says that Colorado has acquired 2 million Binax Now rapid tests to give away. People interested in receiving the tests can sign up at covid19.colorado.gov slash covid-19-testing-at-home, and eight tests will be delivered to them in four to seven days. The recommended use for eight tests is twice weekly for four weeks, but they can be used weekly or even just when someone is symptomatic. The re-upping of the state's free testing program comes as cases in Colorado and across the country are trending downward. Across the state, ICU bed utilization is at 85%. In Larimer County, ICU utilization has been at 100% or higher since August 30th, according to the county COVID-19 dashboard. 
On Tuesday, it was at 103%. In an effort to continue encouraging vaccination, the state is setting up four new community vaccination sites to make it easier for people to get their vaccines, whether it's a first, second, or booster dose for at-risk individuals. Sites will be opening in Aurora, Colorado Springs, Littleton, and Commerce City. Fort Collins is suspending two transport routes indefinitely and reducing service on another due to short, a shortage of bus drivers. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, routes 11 and 12 will be suspended until further notice starting this upcoming Monday, September 27th. Transport is reducing Route 16 service from every half hour to once per hour. The city chose the impacted routes because they have lower ridership and can divert those riders to provide more stable service on other routes. Route 11 runs from the South Transit Center to Fort Collins High School by way of Harmony and Horsetooth. Route 12 runs from Horsetooth and Ziegler to the South Transit Center with stops near Foothills Mall. Route 16 runs from the South Transit Center to Fossil Ridge High School and then on Harmony Transfer Center. Its departures will now leave the South Transit Center at 45 minutes after the hour from 5.45 a.m. to 6.45 p.m. Updated route suspensions and service reductions are posted on RideTransport.com. On-demand taxi service will be available to impacted riders along the suspended routes from Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and Saturdays from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Residents can call 970-225-4831 to schedule a taxi trip to or from a bus stop along a suspended route. The call center hours are Monday through Friday from 5.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. and Saturday through Sunday from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. On-demand service is also available for routes 2, 3, 18, 14, 8, 16, and max on Sundays from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Fort Collins reduced transport service due to economic impacts of the pandemic and significantly reduced ridership, but city leaders had planned to restore transport uh, fort to full service levels next year. Transport service remains free of charge as it has been since spring 2020. Riders are required to wear masks. That's it for local news. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and we'll be right back. The Poudre River Library District is a learning organization dedicated to providing open and equal access to intellectual freedom for the Larimer County community. At any of the three library locations, CSU students can use their RAM cards as library cards to stream movies and TV shows, access research databases, and check out books and equipment. Learn more at PoudreLibraries.org or by visiting one of the three public library locations. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In the last CSU football game, the Rams won against the Toledo Rockets 22-6, our rushing leaders being David Bailey with 30 attempts for 134 yards and an average of 4.4 yards per carry. Quarterback Todd Sentio also had quite a few rushing yards, 63 rushing yards in 12 attempts. Our top receiver, Trey McBride, with 9 receptions for 109 yards, got 90% of the positive yardage passes, and Dante Wright getting the only other positive yardage reception for four yards. A lot of heavy defensive stats for this week. The team had six sacks for for 42-yard loss. Mohamed Kamara with three and a half tackles for loss, nine yards lost in 3.5 tackles, which is a season high, for the Rams, and 2.5 sacks for 17-yard loss, both of these being career-high stats for Kamara. 
Daquan Jackson getting 13 tackles and two tackles for a six-yard loss. Quarterback Todd Sentio threw for 110 yards and was 11 for 27 in passes, was not sacked once, and had zero interceptions. The true stars of the game being Caden Camper, 5 for 5 on field goals, and the big play of the game being the 70-yard punt return for a touchdown. The next game will be against Iowa this Saturday. In women's soccer, the last game, they went 6-0 and at home against Idaho State, with Kristen Noonan getting three goals for a hat trick. Caitlin Abram scoring the first goal. Liv Layton scoring the second, and Gracie Armstrong scoring two goals. The next match will be at home against San Diego State on Friday at 4. Women's volleyball news, they lost their two games against CU, one set to three in Boulder on Thursday and was swept at home on Saturday. Their next match will be Thursday against Boise State at Moby Arena at 7 p.m. In cross country, last Friday was the Road Runner Open in Denver. In the women's division, CSU finished second, and in the men's division, they finished third. Their next event is Friday for the Bell Dellinger Invitational in Oregon. In women's golf, the team placed 16th in the branch law firm Dick McGuire Invitational. And in women's tennis news, their season will begin on Thursday at the Bedford Cup against Air Force in Colorado Springs. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net for for tickets to all sports events, including football, volleyball, soccer, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this has been your RMR Sports Report. This is the first part of my two-part interview with Dr. Doreen Martinez. To hear the second part, tune in next Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. during the Rocky Mountain Review. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. In recent years, Colorado State University and the city of Fort Collins have been struggling to figure out what to do with the former Hughes Stadium land. On August 23rd, they reached an agreement to sell the land to Cottonwood Lands and Farms for the development. However, a group called the Hughes Land Back Initiative has arisen in response to the ongoing decisions, saying that the land was taken from its Native American owners by the federal government and illegally given to CSU in 1957 under the land grant designation. The initiative seeks to either have the land returned to Native American stewardship or to respect the spirit of the land. In order to provide our listeners with more information on the topic, I am joined by Dr. Doreen Martinez, Associate Professor of Native American Studies in the Ethnic Studies Department at Colorado State University, here to talk with us about some of the history of CSU and the Hughes Stadium property. Dr. Martinez, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity, Ivy, and hopefully we can offer some perspectives on a very, very complicated topic and issue. So I just kind of even want to frame that in the beginning or note that in the beginning is that it's a pretty layered and nuanced and complicated um situation event that's happening. So my first question, uh, would you be able to give us a bit of background regarding the history of the CSU land and its previous ownership and significance for Native and Indigenous people? Certainly. I think that this is one of the critical questions that that has arisen, and particularly if we look at the, the land from an Indigenous perspective, one of the things that has gone on is that there's been a kind of Western interpretation of ownership when that happened, who it happened with, and so forth. You know, even, even you know, this idea of, uh, not this idea, but certainly the status of CSU as a land-grant institution, and there's a variety of things that have happened around the development of land-grant institutions. However, I think what's so critical to this situation is prior to that. So if we're talking about indigenous stewardship, we really have to go pre that time period and pre those um, particular understanding in which people are operating from today, you know, so so that we're not in some ways even perpetuating ideas of property ownership in a way that actually is contradicting to really indigenous stewardship practices. So you so so in that, what I mean is, you know, there is this difficulty around people wanting to have a particular date and even have particular boundaries, right? Boundaries of kind of ownership of acreage or boundaries and, and so forth and even a particular understanding of dates in terms of when that occurred. The state of Colorado has recognized 48 tribes and nations with historical presence in what's now the state of Colorado. 
I actually think that gives us some insight to literally what I mentioned earlier on about the complicated nature of this issue. 48 nations and tribes is quite a few versus the one or two that so often potentially get named and when those get named in particular ways. In that, you're understanding that there's 48. However, we also then want to caveat what people use to denote evidence of those presences. So most likely there's a chance that it's even higher. That's, you know, so we know 48 typically has some kind of concrete way in which we're tracking evidence. A lot of that evidence comes again from kind of more contemporary ways of understanding. So it could have been a treaty or it could have been some archaeological evidence, right? Yet there's all kinds of presence um, in which indigenous populations would have had outside of those ways in which that gets counted. So to me, when, when, we, when we discuss, and I say we in plural because it's as indigenous peoples and other people on campus and certainly other people as native people. So I'm a I'm Muscularo Apache, which is a band of the Apache. So there is a way in which we understand these issues from those layers. And then also being a scholar of indigenous studies um, as to where that influences how I want to understand the issue that's going on with the Hughes land, which again, even the naming of Hughes land is a very contemporary word in naming. Hughes and the stadium was built in the 1970s. So you're only going back basically 50 years and how that situates the whole um, uh, circumstance, I think, also is in, kind of insightful to the fact that we're probably not looking at it in the longer historical contextualization in which we would hope people would draw from our understanding of our stewardship and i.e. that means our responsibility to land. I'm kind of I'm saying a lot, so you can also let me know like if if, you, if there's a pause here or something else you want to add into this, because if I really look at the indigenous stewardship and our responsibility to land, it is about the land. And what we've gotten kind of centered on so much more is this idea of ownership and property. And I know that even more recently, they had been doing some reseeding to the land that's there. And that's one of the things that I think gets us, you know, to that idea of steward and, and responsibilities, like how, what's the health of the land and what are we doing regarding the health of that land? I wanted to circle back a bit to when you were talking about stewardship. Um, one of the important parts of the Hughes Landbacks Initiative's goals is they said they aren't seeking the deed to the parcel of land, but they're rather seeking to be given stewardship of the land back. Would you be able to tell us what they mean by stewardship in how native and indigenous communities see land ownership? Yeah, I could only, I can't speak specifically for the alliance. I mean, if anybody, you know, speaks for the alliance, it has to be them. So I don't I'm, I don't know exactly what they mean by stewardship. I can tell you from my experience and again how I was raised in a variety of different tribal communities and nation communities I've been in around stewardship and what that means. And there is a way in which, you know, what, and again, there's, then there's also federal statutes and there's other things that come into that, that can layer this. That's where it gets complicated. There's certainly what I mean in terms of our ideologies and our beliefs and then our practices. And then there are also then again, some of these laws and acts that become part of the conversation too. But I think that, you know, in true indigenous stewardship, I think in one of the ways in which I, I think in a contemporary example, because I always try to use example is that there's been very specific like food sovereignty movements. And part of the food sovereignty movement actually recognizes that food and the things we grow, they themselves are beings and they themselves have rights and agency. So I think about that with land, land has rights itself. That's outside of us as people, you know, particularly kind of putting a stake in the ground or again, naming it in a particular way, but land has rights. That's, that's stewardship in the sense that we initially understand that those lands have rights and we have a responsibility to that land because of the rights it has. You can see this then in legal statues where a number of different indigenous communities globally, and it's also happened domestically, has sought for land and rivers and lakes to literally be designated as having personhood status. And that's really significant, particularly even domestically, where land and rivers and resources fell under like EPA regulations. 
And so this is why certain lands in some ways got polluted in the context that they did or the damage was done because it was only seen as this resource to potentially commodify and or even exploit. Once you designate that as personhood and that the land and the rivers and the lakes have personhood status, it sets up all other types of obligations. So if you can see that as a, an example of how indigenous populations and their beliefs sought to reinforce stewardship, one of the first things is to understand that its value as person, again, more as relative, but at that statue, at that same status as what does it mean regarding how do we take care of people? There's absolutely people who say that that still misses some, that it's really not about people, but in law, it shifts the responsibility and the weight regarding what we can do to that land any and or any kind of consequences that could be befall those who damage it. So I would use that kind of example of personhood to demonstrate stewardship. The connection that I have under food sovereignty is to think about that certain plants, certain things that we grow have the rights to grow literally in their traditional spaces. So food sovereignty in many ways is looking at that return of particular foods to those traditional places in which we've taken them from. This could be an example of like even diversifying the kind of corn that we grow, where we've gone very heavy like monoculture, meaning one type of corn, which we've domesticated and changed. But food sovereignty indigenous communities looking at diversifying that corn back to the multiple varieties of corn. Potatoes is another example. Actually, tomatoes are. There's tons of examples. If we go back to those, that's the rights of food sovereignty, which is a demonstration of stewardship. I would use those two examples to kind of illustrate more what does it mean to have and practice indigenous stewardship? Is the rights of land at the forefront? And how do we facilitate that land and that sense of land um, as, as, its, as its own rightful entity? Much of Colorado's native, native land was taken under federal control following a series of treaties between the U.S. and Native American tribes between 1861 and 1867. Um, many activists, including members of the Hughes Land Back movement, um, have said in the past that these treaties were invalid and served as justification for the U.S. government to steal Native lands. Would you be able to explain where these sentiments are coming from? So again, I would say that I can tell you my perspective. I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for the Alliance in any any kind of capacity. I would um, say prior to the time span in which you've noted that the theft of land and or the you know, there's there's co cohere. You know, people were coerced out of land. People literally. So you would, you know, for us to really understand kind of, you know, land and and who was there and how it got shifted to really kind of Western colonial settler ownership. It's before those treaties even, because this is when you had relocation. You literally had wars to do it right. This is before the treaty. So 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 even during the treaty time period you already, all those lands were already shrunk in terms of territories. You know, you had the Dawes Allotment Act, which shrunk the territories and or did this checkerboard effect, which happens on nation territories. So it, it, so that's, again, for me, I want to look in that larger picture of what happened in terms of, you know, the, the, the continental, what we refer to now as the United States. Everything was indigenous land. Everything was. So you have to have that as a foundation then to understand kind of where we are today if we're going to have this conversation. The treaties were just one of yet another element in which land was actually procured. Procured, And again, some of this is literally, you know, happening during the expansion of the West. Again, some of this is happening early on the Indian Wars. There's a number of different things that had facilitated this kind of taking of land whether again it was through theft or whether it was through promise. I think at times people talk about the treaties much more because there's it's a contract that promised certain types of conditions and that promised certain types of practices. But prior to that, again, you can just, just think the continental of what we consider the United States was all indigenous land. 
So how did it get into other people's hands? You have to ask that question. And again, that's where it was forced relocation. It was assimilation. It literally was warfare. All of those things happened also. So I can't, I don't want to focus just on the one piece of it. Again, you have been listening to the first part of my two-part interview with Dr. Doreen Martinez. To hear the second part, tune in next Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. during the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back. from Slayer, you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News for Thursday on the Rocky Mountain Review. U.S. methamphetamine deaths rise across the U.S., but especially in Arapaho and Cheyenne indigenous tribes. According to Brian Mann from National Public Radio, roughly half of substance abuse patients at the George Hawkins Memorial Treatment Center in Clinton, Oklahoma, which has a considerable Native population, were dealing with methamphetamine addiction. Dr. Nora Valco of the National Institute on Drug Abuse says that the difference in demographics for methamphetamine overdoses are overwhelmingly Alaskan Natives and mainland Native Americans. In a study Valco co-wrote, co-authored, Researchers pointed out that methamphetamine use is now a major cause of high-risk addiction and overdose death across the country. In addition to Native Americans, black communities are also being hit severely by the surge in methamphetamine overdoses. Black Americans saw an increase of 10 times in methamphetamine use in five years. Fentanyl is contributing to methamphetamine overdoses as well, and methamphetamine use has spread into communities where it hasn't been seen in at remotely similar rates before. Methamphetamine previously found itself in majority white communities in rural areas. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine booster shots for at-risk groups. According to the Associated Press, the FDA announced Wednesday that targeting seniors and people with underlying conditions for booster shots would allow for additional protection against COVID-19. The Pfizer vaccine must wait for for additional approval as regulation of the booster shots needs to be created. The Centers for Disease Control opened a multiple-day meeting to plan to create new, specific recommendations for how a third shot should be distributed based on age and health condition. Wednesday, the CDC's experts began these meetings and also began considering halting their recommendations for another month to look at additional evidence. Last month, the Biden administration announced plans to roll out a booster shot to all Americans, but both the FDA and CDC haven't found that necessary so far. One of the main concerns with booster shots is in finding a way to protect against the Delta variant of COVID-19 as well as the original. Two men face charges after reportedly committing an anti-Semitic hate crime in Los Angeles in May of this year. According According to Sarah Moon at CNN, the incident caused injuries to five people who were at a restaurant, and both men were charged in it with two felony counts of assault by means to cause great bodily injury. Xavier Pabon and Samer Jelosi, both in their 30s, are accused of attacking two Jewish men. CNN says that witnesses to the incident reported pro-Palestinian individuals targeting Jewish people who were dining at a local restaurant from their cars as they drove past. One woman told CNN that bottles were thrown from the vehicle as people in the cars yelled anti-Semitic slurs. At least some of the men in the cars attacked people physically and verbally. The Los Angeles Police Department is investigating the attack. The attack and Los Angeles District Attorney George Gasson said, quote, My office is committed to doing all we can to make Los Angeles County a place where our diversity is embraced and protected. End quote. 
Clinics offering abortion near Texas borders are flooded with patients following the ban on abortion in the state after six weeks. According to Shafali Luthra at USA Today, Oklahoma City's Trust Women Reproductive Clinic saw double the abortion patients it normally sees in a week, with 80 coming in the week of September 6. Around two-thirds of these patients were from Texas, according to the clinic's communications director, Zachary Gingrich-Gaylord. The Trust Women location in Wichita, Kansas, saw 70 abortion patients the same week, with half coming from Texas and many Oklahomans coming in for abortion services due to Texans surging nearby abortion clinics, making Oklahoman patients unable to make appointments in their area. The Department of Justice said in a briefing last week, quote, Patients from Texas are traveling sometimes five to eight hours each way to get to a health center in Oklahoma, end quote. Planned Parenthood locations in Oklahoma are also being overwhelmed by patients in Texas, with between 50 and 75 percent of appointments being booked by Texans. That's all for national news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're tuned in the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any part of today's show, check us out on Spotify by searching KCSU News, or check us out online at kcsufm.com news. Up next, we're going to be hearing from Anton Schindler with his podcast, Painting the Corners. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 25 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now, in last week's episode, we talked about some of the rather fun events that professional baseball players from around the world, well, for the most part, get to participate in. We talked about baseball in the World Baseball Classic, as well as baseball in the Olympics. Now, during that discussion, I brought up a sport called Basaplo, which is a Finnish variant of baseball. Now, this simple baseball-like game gave me a pretty good idea. So, today, we're going to take a deep dive into the various other, well, variations of the sport of baseball, some of which were inspired by the sport of baseball, and some of which might have inspired baseball to become the sport that it is today. To start this podcast, we have to bring up the idea of just bat and ball games. Now, it's impossible to be sure of the exact dates that some of these sports were played in, as the origin of baseball itself is, I mean, impossible to find. But you see, different variations of bat and ball games have been tossed around for a few hundred years. Now, most of the time, these games were folk games, games played by working class citizens, as well as peasants and children and so on and so forth. A kind of weird part about it, too, is that a lot of the time when these games were being played, they were mostly associated with religious ceremonies and worship rituals. Although, I can't really imagine that it stayed that way for very long. Could you imagine the competition that would come up with that kind of thing? (laughs) Now, sometime in the 18th century in England, a game called Rounders started to form as one of the very first primitive versions of baseball. One huge difference between Rounders and baseball is the bats. You see, Rounders bats tend to be around 18 inches shorter than a baseball bat and are usually swung with one hand, even though you can still use two hands, but for the most part, swung with one hand instead of the two hands that you would need to use in order to swing a baseball bat. The bats are usually made out of the same material of a baseball bat. However, some early rounders bats had a pretty thick layer of animal skin going around it. Rounders balls are made of leather and occasionally plastic if you're playing it inside, and have a cork or hollow center depending on the type of ball. Now, another crazy part about rounders is that there are no strikes and there are no balls. You get one pitch and you run whether you hit it or you don't. You see, you get points by making a complete circuit, as they call it. You run around the bases counterclockwise as you would in baseball, running from first, second, third, and then home. If you can complete this entire circuit before you're out, which can happen in a lot of similar ways as it does in baseball, then you get a point. Also, it's important to mention that you can stay at any base you like, well, besides home, if you want to wait for one of your other eight teammates for their chance at the plate. 
The field is square and is about 77 yards by 77 yards in size. The bases are 25 yards apart in Ireland or 13 yards apart in England. As far as a team goes, a rounder squad can comprise of as little as 6 players and as much as 15 players, but is regularly composed of 9 fielders on a field at one time. There's the bowler, the catcher, 4 post fielders, and then 3 deep fielders scattered all across the field. And when I say scattered all across the field, I mean that the positioning isn't really what it's like in baseball. No gaps of the field are really filled by any of the players. So, like the kind of second base area that a second baseman would play in baseball, there's no one there. Same with the shortstop side. It really just goes straight to the deep fielders at that point. Each post fielder has to stay by the bag, making the deep fielders really just the most important part of the field, if you really think about it, when the ball is hit into play. Other than that, though, the game is pretty similar to baseball. I mean, it's very easy to tell that rounders could have played a pretty big part in the inspiration behind baseball in the first place. Another similar sport to baseball comes in the form of softball, which is probably the most similar sport and definitely the most popular one that we'll talk about all episode. Baseball and softball, as far as origins go at least, started pretty close to the same time. The first organized professional baseball team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, started all the way back in 1869, while the first recorded amateur softball association was formed in 1933, and that association was basically formed just in order to help create rules that could be used for this new sport of softball. The origin of softball is honestly a kind of weird one. Actually, no, a very weird one. According to a good amount of sources online, actually, the first real game of softball was played with a broom handle and a boxing glove, right after a football game ended between Harvard and Yale on Thanksgiving in 1887. You see, apparently, a Yale student lofted a boxing glove at a Harvard student after the game had finished. The Harvard student then batted it away with a broom handle. And they started playing that a little bit here and there, and it eventually formed into an entire game. By 1913, the sport had gained more solid rules and was officially accepted as a sport by the Minneapolis Park Board, leading up to the formation of the Amateur Softball Association. It's really weird to think that softball, you know, according to these sources, was formed literally by playing, I guess, a variation of baseball with a boxing glove. I mean, I guess it makes sense, you know, why they would call it softball in the first place. Softball is basically exactly the same as baseball, besides a few differences here and there. For starters, the bats are usually shorter and thinner and therefore lighter. The balls are quite a bit bigger, and the fields, including the distance between bases, are smaller. Softball bases are only 60 feet from each other instead of 90, and the fences are usually placed around 220 feet-ish from home plate, opposed to the 300-400 foot fences that you see in baseball. Another thing that some people might not realize is that softball is only played for 7 innings, but can also go into extra innings just like baseball can. Other than that though, the way you score, the way you get outs, the positioning on the field, and really just about everything else follows a pretty similar suit with baseball. Another kind of interesting one comes in the form of stickball. Now, stickball is another game that originated pretty directly from baseball, and really just ball and bag games in general. I mean, stickball is kind of the definition of bat and ball games, as you will soon find out. The only real difference between stickball and baseball is instead of playing baseball on a huge field with plenty of room and all of that, Stickball is usually played in the streets, in alleyways, backyards, against buildings, and that kind of thing as well. One huge difference in stickball comes from this idea that the dimensions of the field and 
I guess therefore the rules, change from place to place. Depending on where you play stickball, you'll have to figure out what part of the building is a home run, which wall is a base hit, and which wall is a foul ball, and so on and so forth. There are less strict and formal rules when it comes to the game. I mean, usually if the ball is popped up and a fielder catches it, the hitter's out. But if you hit a ball that hits way up high on a building, I mean, it could be called a home run. It just kind of depends. It's a really creative take on using the most out of your environment in the name of the sport. As far as equipment goes, however, there's often no bases and really no running involved. It might just be something as simple as, okay, the ball hit this part of the building, so you get a double, and you now have a runner at second base. And then the next person that comes up is trying to hit in that invisible runner that's currently standing on second base. Stickball is one of those games that I can imagine almost all kids growing up probably played, or at least had some version of it. It's a very easy and simple game that you could spend hours and hours on. And actually, many of the greatest baseball players ever played stickball when they were kids. I mean, guys like Babe Ruth and Willie Mays, who would occasionally stop by parks to play stickball on his way to the stadium. (laughs) I mean, could you imagine being a kid playing a game of stickball with your friends and then have Willie Mays, who was at the time in the major leagues, show up and really just show you how it's done? (laughs) I mean, talk about an unbelievable experience. Also, if you've never seen the picture of the Say Hey Kid playing stickball, it's definitely something that you should look up. Just saying. Sure, there are plenty of other games like stickball that are loosely related to but formed directly from the sport of baseball. I mean, look at wiffle ball, for example. Created in 1953 by David N. Milani, wiffle ball was formed out of plastic in order to make the sport more recreational. T-ball gave youngsters a chance to learn how to swing a bat and prepare them for baseball and softball when they got older. There are some other ones, however, that have an extremely similar concept as baseball in this general idea that we've discussed about, about bat and ball games. But it's really nothing like it. And for that, I mean cricket. Now, I had to do way more research on this particular part of the podcast. And frankly, I feel that I only really have a general understanding of how cricket is played. So if I get something wrong, yeah. So if I get something wrong here, I sincerely apologize. From what I got from it, the bowler bowls a ball from one end of the pitch towards the wickets on the other side of the pitch, where the hitter is standing. From there, it's the hitter's job to take that pitch and drive it anywhere around them. There are no foul balls in the game of cricket. Now, there are no foul balls in the game of cricket, so you could theoretically hit a ball directly behind you and it'd be fair. When you do hit it, instead of running a set of bases, the batter just runs back and forth between the two wickets until one of the fielder either catches the ball in the air or hits the wickets with the ball, knocking off the bales sitting on top of the wickets. Now, the scoring is even more confusing. You see, batters rack up points by running between the wickets. However, when it comes to the overall score, it shows the number of runs scored by the team and the number of wickets taken from the opposing team. So, let's say that your team scored 100 runs in a game, but your opponent hit your wickets six times, meaning you've lost that wicket six times, then your overall score for that game is 100 to 6, or like, 100-6 is like how you would write it out. Some of the time, cricket matches can last around three hours with single innings of 20 overs, which is basically a fancy term for six legal bowls from the pitcher. However, there are test matches as well, ones that can take up to five days to decide. This form and length of cricket is often referred to as the highest standard when it comes to the sport and it's the most common example as played in international competitions. They call it a test match because it's literally a test on the players. I mean, could you imagine how physically and mentally demanding such a match could be? Test matches last four innings instead of just one, 
and, in one instance, can last nine days like it did in a match between South Africa and England in 1939. After the game was played, it was given possibly one of the coolest nicknames I think any sporting event could ever be. It was called the Timeless Test, (laughs) and it had 680 overs bowled, which I crunched the numbers, and I think that would have been around 4,080 bowls, like straight from the pitcher. And that's not including any of the illegal ones, so, you know, add maybe another 1,000, 2,000 bowls to that game. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Cricket is played with 11 players on each side, 11 players who really are the definition of endurance and really ability based on these conditions. And baseball is the one that's always getting flagged for how long it takes. So as you can see, baseball really is just another bat and ball sort of game. It's both play to hand and the inspiration behind many sports we hold true to ourselves all over the world, as well as just taking parts from variations that came before it. But that got me thinking. I mean, did rounders really play the biggest role in the creation of baseball? Or did baseball just borrow a few things from it? Is there another game that I might have missed in my research that may have even formed into baseball just further down the line? So next week's episode, we're going to talk about the real story behind baseball. You see, baseball's origins have a long history one that is often confused and shaped differently between historians and fans. But next week, we're going to do our best to find out how baseball really began and talk about the reality of Colorado's part in the creation of baseball, as well as the Doubleday theory. I've got a lot of research to do. But until then, thank you for listening. Abby from the Collegian at Rocky Mountain Student Media, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reported six new cases Wednesday, moving the university's cumulative case count to nearly 3,600 across students, faculty, and staff at the university. Members of the CSU community can submit vaccine info, schedule a screening, or report symptoms by visiting covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County and the CDC report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask or surgical disposable mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports over 35,000 cases and 285 deaths due to COVID-19. The seven-day case rate for Larimer County rests at 227 cases per 100,000 residents. 60 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals, and ICUs are at 100% capacity in the county. In the state of Colorado, over 656,000 cases of COVID-19 were reported, along with over 7,000 deaths. 3.4 million Coloradans are fully immunized across the state, for COVID-19. The U.S. reports over 42.5 million cases of COVID-19, with an increase of 130,000 Wednesday, and a 12% decrease over the past 14 days. The U.S. reports 680,000 deaths due to COVID-19, with over 2,000 new deaths Wednesday, and a 35% increase in the past 14 days. 
Alaska, the Midwestern United States, and Wyoming are facing dramatic rises in COVID-19 cases. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, the Associated Press, and the New York Times. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now we're going to be hearing from Kenneth Frederick from CTV. On behalf of Kenneth Frederick from CTV, I'm going to be reading a sneak peek for tonight's episode. Tonight at 7 on CTV 11, we'll be covering a controversial resolution from the ASCSU regarding free speech. Also, you can find out what's going on with labor shortages on campus with Wedton Hubbard's report. Get your Ram football predictions with Cam Avig as we face off against Iowa this weekend and hear about an amazing local chicken restaurant from Noah Pasley. All that and more will be on CTV 11 tonight at 7. Thank you, and we'll be right back. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News for Thursday on the Rocky Mountain Review. California became the first state to, t- to create quota limits for large retailers like Amazon. According to Don Thompson at the Associated Press, the state now bars large retailers from firing employees for failing to meet quotas, especially in instances that would interfere with those employees taking bathroom and rest breaks. The law was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom and also bars companies from disciplining employees for engaging in proper health and safety standards and allows workers to sue if quotas are unsafe. All warehouse distribution centers must follow the new conditions, but it was aimed specifically at Amazon warehouses based on various reports on their working conditions in the past few years. Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, who authored the bill, said following its passing the quote, Amazon is pushing workers to risk their bodies for next day delivery while they can't so much as use the restroom without fearing retaliation, end quote. TikTok users found a way to use the investing habits of members of Congress to plan their own investments. According to Tim Mack at National Public Radio, this trend was started by young investors on the app like CEO Watchlist and Quick Trades. They particularly take an interest in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trading habits, with user CEO Watchlist joking that Nancy Pelosi is a psychic when it comes to market trends and investing. The investors are taking advantage of a law that requires legislators to disclose their stock trades and those of their spouses 45 days before trading. One of the TikTok users taking advantage of this trend is Iris App, which is run by young investor Chris Josephs. Iris App is Josephs' platform, and it allows users to get push notifications about Pelosi's stock disclosures to help users benefit from the information quickly. Pelosi's spokesperson addressed the trend, saying that Pelosi has no involvement with the investors taking advantage of her stock announcements. YouTube Premium members are now able to test a feature allowing users to download videos from their desktop browsers. According to Jay Peters of The Verge, members of YouTube Premium can check their eligibility for the testing program by going to YouTube's Experimental Features page, which shows features exclusively available to its Premium members. Chrome, Edge, and Opera are all supported browsers for users that choose to opt in and users who, fe- who use the experimental feature will see an option to download the video under the player. This feature aims to make it so that users can view videos offline rather than just having the videos saved to their devices. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday. Now, for weird news. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to be a little bit weird. So here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. Llamas are assisting researchers in developing immunotherapy against COVID-19 with promising results. According to Victoria Gill at the BBC, researchers at the Rosalind Franklin Institute in Oxfordshire, England, are developing possible immunotherapy treatments to protect against COVID-19 through the use of nanobodies, smaller and simpler forms of antibodies the cells our immune system uses to fight disease. Llamas and camels are one of the few animals that produce nanobodies instead of antibodies. Professor James Naismith, who is one of the lead researchers and director of the Rosalind Franklin Institute, says that nanobodies are, quote, fantastically exciting, end quote. 
Naismith says that the nanobodies used to develop a new treatment going through trial come from a llama named Fifi, who lives at the Franklin Institute. By vaccinating Fifi with a tiny, non-infectious piece of COVID-19, the scientists simulated her immune system to make nanobodies. The scientists then carefully picked out and purified the most potent nanobodies in a sample of Fifi's blood, those that matched the viral protein most closely. After developing a nasal spray with the nanobodies, researchers say that coronavirus-infected rodents treated with the spray fully recovered within six days. This apparent COVID-fighting potency comes from the strength with which the nanobodies bind to the virus. Just like our own antibodies, virus-specific nanobodies latch on and bind to viruses and bacteria that invade our bodies. This binding essentially tags an invading virus with an immune red flag to enable the rest of the body's immune system to target it for destruction. The nanobodies produced by llamas' immune systems bind particularly tightly. Professor Naismith and his collaborators who published their research in the journal Nature Communications agreed that even with the success of COVID vaccines, offering affected treatments in the future is essential and that while this treatment is in its very early stages, it shows promising signs for future use for human treatment. A 10-foot-wide house in Boston reportedly sold for one and a quarter million dollars. According to Jamila Huxtable, James Dobleck, and Barry Gordimer at National Public Radio, located in the city's historic North End neighborhood, the two-bedroom, one-bath home was built in 1890, according to city tax records, though some accounts say 1862. The real estate house agency calls it the Skinny House, measuring just over a thousand square feet. The listing reads, quote, for floor through residence with a three exposure offering a unique floor plan, manicured gardens, and a private roof deck with unobstructed harbor and city views, end quote. The house is a frequent tourist spot seen along the Freedom Trail in Boston. Mary McGee, who lives across the street and has been with the North End, uh, been in the North End for 40 years, tells NPR that locals know the house as the Narrow House, or more commonly as the Spite House. The legend is that two brothers inherited the land for some time around the Civil War. One of them went away to fight and came home to find that the other brother had built a house bigger than his share of the land. So the returning soldier built a skinny house in the only space left. McGee says that, quote, the other brother, to spite him, built the house there to block off entry, end quote. Travis Sachs, the real estate agent who says that they sold the house to a family of four for $1.25 million, saying, quote, The kids are going to have the bunk beds and the mother and father are going to be in the master suite next to the private roof deck. The kids are going to have the whole backyard and they're also going to have four really skinny levels of house to live in, end quote. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now for the weather. She's just mad about me. They call me mellow yellow. Quite frankly. Hey yo, it's me, DJ Wired Joe. My show, Sunday Disposition, is from 11 to 1 on Sundays. Tune in and tell me what makes your disposition sunny. Today we saw warm and mostly sunny skies with a high of 83 and a low of 49. Friday will be cool will be cooling down slightly with mostly sunny skies and a high of 80 with a low of 46. Saturday will be bright and sunny with a high of 86 and a low of 52, and Sunday will warm up to a high of 88 with a low of 53 and mostly sunny skies. Monday will be almost identical to Sunday but with no clouds. Tuesday, Fort Collins will see a high of 84 and a low of 50 with mostly sunny skies. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins from 4 to 5 p.m. For the Rocky Mountain Review this Tuesday, I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabe, Marie Tanksley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.